Homeland Security Department has long focused on immigration statistics. Now, under a new office, DHS plans to centralize statistical activities occurring across its components. Officials want the initiative to bring more evidence-based decision-making to DHS. Well, this will require data quality standards and buy-in from the components. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday reports. The Department of Homeland Security is pledging to promote greater transparency and data-driven analysis through the Office of Homeland Security Statistics. That new organization will replace and expand on DHS's Office of Immigration Statistics. While immigration-related data will continue to be a major focus of OHSS, the new office will also publish reports on areas ranging from law enforcement use of force incidents to cyber attacks on federal networks. In establishing this new office, we'll begin releasing data more quickly with greater granularity and covering a broader scope of DHS activities. Simply growing the reporting and data governance that accompanies it will be a big undertaking, and it goes without saying that DHS data are important. That's Mark Rosenblum, the executive director of the new OHSS. Rosenblum and other officials gathered at DHS headquarters on Thursday to mark the opening of the office. It's another coming-of-age moment for DHS. This department, the newest federal department, has been the largest domestically focused federal department without an OMB-recognized independent statistical unit. That changes today with the creation of the Office of Homeland Security Statistics. Robert Silvers is Undersecretary of Homeland Security for Strategy, Policy, and Plans. We are maturing this department. We are going from ad hoc to institutionalized and systematic, and we are creating independence and integrity in our data, which is only a good thing for the American people and those who are vested with responsibility to make very consequential decisions in everything from counterterrorism, cybersecurity, trade and travel facilitation, immigration, and much, much more. The new office will help bring DHS in line with the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act of 2018, known as the Evidence Act. The law requires agencies to make their data accessible and to support their policymaking through statistical evidence. But DHS's new office will have to rely on data generated by the department's many frontline organizations. Karen Orvis, chief statistician of the United States, also addressed DHS leaders during the inauguration event last week. She says close coordination will be essential. I can't state how critical this is, honestly. The effectiveness of the OHSS is going to depend largely on the support from all of you in this room. And this will be by participating in the development and the implementation of department-wide data quality and confidentiality standards and policies, by providing your program data to this new office and working with them to help them understand and unlock the value of that data for evidence building, by enabling and supporting them to fulfill their responsibilities of a statistical agency or unit as laid out in the Evidence Act. Fulfilling those responsibilities will require DHS to adopt enterprise data standards. OHSS plans to work with DHS's chief data officer to define how operational data will be stored in systems, as well as how to translate that information into statistical data. Those standards will help trace DHS statistics back to their source, ensuring OHSS reports are accurate, independent, and trustworthy. A key responsibility of the new office will be managing DHS's statistical system of record that will churn out public reports. In the coming weeks, 
The Statistics Office will publish the first of a new monthly immigration report. Here's Mark Rosenblum again. This is a big step forward for an office that until recently published data annually a few years late. So we're, we're, we're really upping our game. And even as it expands on the former Office of Immigration Statistics, immigration-related data will continue to be a major focus for OHSS. 23 out of the 25 data sets the office has received so far are related to immigration. And the new Migration Analysis Center will be housed at the office. The center will be central to collecting data and producing reports on immigration enforcement and migration trends. But in the coming weeks, OHSS plans to release two reports on non-immigration areas. The first will focus on counterfeit and pirated goods seized by Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And the second report will provide data on all use-of-force incidents recorded by DHS law enforcement agencies in fiscal 2022. DHS employs approximately 80,000 law enforcement officers across its various components. Officials say releasing the use-of-force data will help boost transparency and accountability. By the end of next year, OHSS will also release reports on disaster deployments, airport security operations, maritime response operations, and federal cybersecurity incidents. Tom Warmer is branch chief for Homeland Security Response Data. This is just the start of our expansion. In the coming years, we will both expand to new domains, such as infrastructure protection, and add additional reports within each of these domains. As we work across the department to improve data quality and validate statistical standards, we will improve these reports to include additional data and statistical analysis when possible. Ultimately, the new office's aim is to become a recognized federal statistical unit under the Evidence Act. Those organizations are recognized by the White House Office of Management and Budget as demonstrating the highest commitments to generating publicly available data and statistics with integrity, objectivity, and accuracy. And Rosenblum says meeting those tenets will also bring benefits to DHS leaders. Everything we do to fulfill the fundamental principles for federal statistical agencies that are outlined in the Evidence Act will further support this mission and further increase the rigor and the consistency of publicly available DHS data. We depend on and really have such a strong partnership with the operational components. We've really grown uh, that working relationship, and it's, it's, it's a huge part of what we do. And that we continue to play such a, a key role supporting leadership decision-making. Justin Doubleday, Federal News Network. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported 
and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
you. your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.